This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. here with you, George. Um, so I think we're going to start with a short reading from your book. Okay. Um, thank you. Yeah, so um, I want to just explain briefly what the book is about, um, and uh, and I want to say thank you all for being here. It's a really beautiful evening. Um, I come from Oregon, a land of rain. I know what it is to, to be inside when the weather's nice, so thank you. Um, um, the premise for this book is that um, we, we're, we have new and powerful technologies for tinkering with DNA, right? DNA is what we inherit from our parents. It's, what's, it's the material of genes. It's the molecule that makes possible the building, maintaining, and replicating of an organism, okay? Um, we have more power to read and write that than ever before. The premise of the book is that that power compels a question of belonging. If we can select and shape future people, we have to think about which bodies and minds we value, which bodies and minds belong. Um, now, if, if I were a, a bioethicist, I would mount more of an argument. If I were a historian, I would dig into the archives, but I'm a poet, and so I kind of tell stories and use metaphors and have this kind of gumbo of a book that mixes all sorts of things together. And so I wanted to read from the beginning and, 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 and give a, a flavor of it, and then we'll get to a conversation. <clears throat> In late March of 2001, a month after my younger daughter Laura was born, then diagnosed with Down syndrome, I drove out to the Oregon desert. Teresa, my wife, had taken Laura and her older sister Ellie back east to visit family. I wanted some distance, a change of landscape, a broader perspective, or at least a new one. I was with a friend I'll call Robert, the first person I told about Laura. In the weeks since Laura's diagnosis, he'd been listening more than talking. When he spoke, he was measured and considerate. He had distance without being distant. For me and Teresa, mired in simple yet unassimilable facts, Laura's extra chromosome, her condition, her heart defect as yet unrepaired, Robert's presence was as consoling as any empathetic shock. We loaded up tents, packs, ramen noodles, and candy bars. Then we shooed the two dogs into the back of the Subaru. His dog, an expressive, jolly English pointer, and Penny, our anxious, submissive, cinnamon-colored mutt, fattened by years of food falling from high chairs. They scrabbled and slobbered and whined. We set out, calling back to them to calm down. It felt good to be driving east, toward the usual limits of vision. We live in the Willamette Valley, a wide north-south swath of agricultural grass fields, bounded to the west by the low, softened mountains of the coast range, and to the east by the intermittent snowy peaks of the Cascades, Mount Jefferson, Three Finger Jack, the Three Sisters, widely spaced as punctuation for an unseen sentence. As you descend from the pass, the Douglas firs recede, replaced by ponderosa pines, then juniper, then sage. The ground, once loamy, is cindery and dry. The air smells different, rarefied, sharper. Soon it's all fence wire, sky, and the scoured forms of hills. Their cinnamons and russets knotted by sagebrush like the back of a rug. As the landscape emptied out, I began talking about Laura, venting, the words spilling over. I didn't know how to think about her. I remember saying I wanted her to be Laura, my daughter, not a medical case, not an extra chromosome. I could already hear the iron doors of categories clanging shut, special needs, disabled, developmentally delayed. I didn't want her to be the sum of her medical problems. I wanted some sliver of her life left pure. Robert mostly listened and kept his counsel. I do remember his saying that Down syndrome seemed to him part of the normal range of human variation and that as such, Laura might be unique and valuable not in spite of her Down syndrome, but because of it. 
We arrived late, switchbacking up to the plateau where the campground was, and set up tents in the shadow of rounded hills, hurrying to feed the dogs and ourselves before dark. In the evening, we walked up the dirt road from the campsite. The dogs bounded ahead, researching invisible trails. You could still see some orange in the west. A few bright clouds were ashing over. Then the first star was out, and the sky was all gradations of blue. But one cloud stayed, pink as the inside of a grapefruit. It was different. The other clouds were definably volumes, objects in the sky. A child could look up at it and say car or horse. But this cloud had no shape you could name by likeness. It was a blur, a region of unfocus, a mist. It was, we thought, simply higher than the other clouds, thinnest cirrus gathering the last of a sun we'd already turned away from. But as the sky darkened, the clouds' colors grew deeper, more saturated. It seemed lit from within. We could see the light moving, rippling with soft verticals, like folds in a heavy curtain, a dark coruscation, a pulse. It was clear that we were looking, somehow, at the aurora borealis, a rare event at this latitude, but evidently there. The cloud was not a cloud. It had been right in front of us all along, but expectation had kept us from seeing it for what it was. I was trying to answer the question that disability had posed. I was doing so in a world that abounds with wrong answers, that did not even have satisfactory language with which to begin to speak. This book explores our ongoing American conversation about human-focused biotechnology, applications able to read and write DNA, the molecule of which genes are composed. If I begin this book with a story about Laura, it's not only because her condition is genetic, it's because stories about disability are central to that conversation. Even as I drove out to the desert, I was beginning to understand the shape of the standard story, to understand how much of it I had already inhaled and made my own. I was discovering the fables I already believed. In the years afterward, as I worked on a book about Laura, I learned and relearned the obvious but vital truth that narrative questions are also political ones. Who gets a story? Who gets to tell it? Whose stories are credited? and the limits of stories themselves. So I'll stop there, and uh, we can go to a talking some more. Great. Well, thank you so <laughs> yeah. much. Thank um, you, Osagi. So we're going to spend the next good part of the next part of the hour yeah. talk, talking about your daughter, Laura, yeah. who you introduced us to in the, in the uh, excerpt that you read. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit more about her? Sure. Um, Laura is uh, 18 years old now. She's about to graduate from high school. Um, she... Um, Let's see. What is she like? She's a teenager. She likes to hang out in her room with her headphones on. Um, uh, she, um, her room, she decorated herself. And if you look um, at, a, at, at about maybe 63 inches is the upper limit of all of the stickers. And that's because that's as high as she can reach. She's four foot eight. But in her in in her room, like it had been really quiet for a long time. And I went down there, and she had taken like four books of like Star Wars, Frozen, and and Harry Potter stickers, and the, the walls were just completely covered up to this high tide line. You know, it's like just all over. Um, so she likes that. Um, she has been on the varsity cheerleading team uh, for the last couple of years. She likes to dance. She raises rabbits for four H. Um, both rabbits are named after TV characters, one from Glee, the other from an obscure Australian first responder reality show. I don't – she likes medical stuff. Don't ask why. And so – but she's – I mean, she's just all herself. And and the thing about Laura is, you know, when when she arrived, as I suggested in this excerpt, it was a shock. But a lot of the shock was kind of the reality of it plus – the stereotypes attached to it to realizing that this is a person who is her own person and just not knowing anything. Uh, But Laura has been very definite in asserting who she is. I I can say a lot of her life is dedicated to disproving the stereotype that that people with Down syndrome are always sweet and placid. So (laughs) (laughs) she, she is that. She has this amazing, you know, positive spirit, but she has a mind of her own for sure. Right. So in some ways, this book seems to be a continuation of the conversation that you started in your memoir, The Shape of the Eye. Um, can you talk about this first book and how it led you to fables and futures? Absolutely. Um, so the first book, The Shape of the Eye, is, is more – it's a memoir, and it's more of a story. Um, I, I teach graduate class in creative writing, and so um, 
in, in that class I talk about structuring a memoir. And one thing you can do if you establish a strong narrative is that you can depart from it. So in my case, um, you know, I was telling the story of Laura growing up and my evolving feelings about her understanding of her, the way not my just my idea of Down syndrome or disability, but my idea of people was changing. But I wasn't just telling a story. I started thinking about other things. I started thinking about history, um, the history of Down syndrome. Um, um, uh, for example, the the original name of Down syndrome is Mongolian idiocy. I don't know, or Mongoloid. I don't know how many of you know that. That dates to the 19th century when John Langdon Down um, saw the eyes of people in his asylum who had Down syndrome. He mistook them for looking Asian, and he decided that these children had somehow degenerated in the womb. He believed in a hierarchy of race, and he thought they had slipped down. Now, this was interesting to me because my mother is Japanese. So a lot of the book became a meditation, not just on not just telling a story, but a meditation on on categories of exclusion of disability and of race and how these are bound together in very strange ways with diagnosis. Um, but the main thing I was doing was telling a story. And so when I was done, there were a lot of threads I wanted to pick up and follow. I really wanted to think more about technology. I wanted to think more beyond Down syndrome, which I had focused on, and think more about disability and especially intellectual disability more broadly. And so this book is kind of like the reverse of that one. It's more scholarly and reflective, and the stories are there, but the stories are are not the main structuring part. So I, I kind of think of each book um, lead, has something left over uh, to explore, and so um, that's what that's what led to this. So, what are some of the challenges um, with combining a personal story, a deeply personal story, with uh, a large scale social and political issue? Um, because you're almost, you know, engaging a issue that goes far beyond yourself and your family, but you're telling it through uh, the personal experience you have. There's a lot of challenges. One is a lot of one thing has to do with what readers expect. Like, you know, if you go into a bookstore, you know, there are um, you know, they're, you know, your science fiction is here, your memoirs are here, you know, your fiction is here, your, and so everything is, is siloed, and to some extent that's just selling or capitalism. You know, things need to be in boxes. So it's hard to say, well, I want to do, I want to write a book that contains elements of all of those and doesn't identify as any single one. Um, you have to look for the hinge between your personal experience and something larger. So um, what you have to find the element in your life that resonates with something beyond yourself. So, for example, I mentioned that Laura likes to keep and show rabbits for 4-H, right? So that led me to a chapter where I was thinking about people and animals more generally and this bizarre practice from the uh, around World War I through the uh, 1920s called the Fitter Family Contests where it's state fairs in the Midwest, um, where, you know, typically animals get ribbons and are, are awarded prizes, families would enter contests to be considered the most fit. So they would be asked, uh, they would undergo physical examinations, they would uh, be asked extensive questionnaires about the histories of illness in their family and so on. And the most fit, meaning the most fit to reproduce, which of course meant um, was a, a purely white category, um, was, uh, would win the medal. And the medal had a, um, a quote from the Psalms. It was, yay, for I have a goodly heritage. So for me, this was fascinating, this bizarre ritual of enforced normalcy, um, the fact that it was made into a game. And, but at the same time, I was like, oh, I can pivot from a scene in a, a a county fair in 2017 with Laura showing her rabbits to uh, a scene in, say, 1909 with um, these, you know, these writing about these families lining up saying, you know, judge me, I'm worthy to, you know, continue reproducing. Um, so a lot of it is just finding that hinge and pivoting between them. Um, the other challenge I would say, and this is something I've thought really hard about in, you know, writing about a parent, being a parent, of a kid with Down syndrome, I feel like I have the authority. I wouldn't dream of saying, I know how it is, period. Every parent is different. Every kid is different. 
but to start talking about other conditions of which I do not have experience requires a lot of care. So what I wound up doing um, rather than, I don't know, what you'd call able-splaining, you know, I, I, I would instead, I would looked for writing by people that I really respected. So uh, Rachel Kolb writing about uh, having a cochlear implant and how that changed her experience of deafness, for example. Um, and and more tr- at that point, I became more of a curator where I would quote at length and kind of stand out of the way and say, I wouldn't begin to know how to write about this experience, but here's someone who does. So, right, yeah, right. Yeah. So you mentioned the Fitter Family Contest yeah. at yeah, uh, yeah. So a colleague of mine at the University of Michigan, Alexandra Stern. Yeah. She writes about a variation of that, which was the Better Baby Contest. Yes. Uh, and it, it's, it's a fascinating history uh, for a couple of reasons. So one, just the, the contests themselves, you know, there are these, you know, largely agricultural uh, spaces in the Midwest in the early 1900s. And, you know, as you're saying, they would judge corn, judge horse pigs, they judge horses. And then babies, right? Yeah. <laughs> and the same kind of ideology that uh, that one can control and breed uh, the best uh, outcomes um, through controlled scientific measures was central to both how, you know, livestock and corn were, be- were viewed as much as uh, – I, I say the, it was the same type of measurements or same type of like thinking about measurements that were applied to livestock and and and, um, and vegetables as as well as as humans as well um, as people as yeah. well as people right right so that brings us to a uh, I think a conversation that's central to your book eugenics so let's talk about it let's let's talk eugenics so, <laughs> um, so how does the history of eugenics shape your concerns about what disability means, especially in this new 21st century world where science and technology um, gives people greater control of, uh, or of what um, some of these outcomes might be? Um, that, is a, that is a really good question. I think um, – and, and Alexandra Stern, whom I know also is, is a fantastic historian. I relied on her, and she, she actually read a version of this. And, and so I, I found myself turning to the historians more than anyone else. Like in, in the bibliography, they, they outweigh everyone considerably. I don't, I'm not sure. I'm still not sure why. But um, so there's a – as a writer, there's kind of a double move that I'm doing. Like on the one hand, you talk about the fitter families, and you go like, oh, yeah, that's that's just – completely bizarre and and ridiculous so that's the first move and it is it's very strange or the better babies contest like they all wore togas they all got dressed up in greek togas and apparently parents got extremely worried and so the in with the better babies the grading was very inflated like (laughs) there are very few you know they just couldn't tell the parents like no i'm sorry you fail (laughs) so you know i'm sure parents were self-selected but um so you look at that and it just seems completely strange and bizarre in another world a hundred years ago and then you start to see the continuities and that's the second move which is to say well um is the eugenic era what we would call the mainline or classical era say 1900 to 1935 or so how different is it in some ways radically different in some ways, it was a there was um, a a top down motion. There was sterilization was wide was widespread and legal after 1927. Um, in other ways, um, there are continuities, and there are a few there are a few continuities that I think of. One is the obsession with intellect. Um, what I have found is that um, both then in the mainline period of eugenics and now the obsession with intellect as a central defining quality of humans and the, the quality to optimize, um, that is, um, that's true from, from then to now. Um, a second is the focus on the American family. So um, you have the fitter family contests, uh, you know, and the better babies contests of the the early 20th century. But even now, new genetic products are sold with images of ideal families. If you look at the um, ads, for example, for new prenatal tests, it is um, they're essentially using one, a very narrow, restricted idea of the American family. It's it it is at least from all the ads I've seen is invariably. uh, two-parent, heterosexual, um, clearly upper-middle class, um, and and extremely attractive. Um, it's a very narrow ideal. So idealized families are used to advance eugenic ideas then and now. Um, but the main 
um, the main thing that, or one, the, sorry, let me back up. The main connection I see is the existence of persuasion. If you do not have a, a you're not living in a literal dictatorship, um, if you want people to embrace new um, uh, technologies, you need persuasion. So the Better Babies and Fitter Family contests were were not, I mean, they're, you look back and go, ha-ha, they're funny, but they're also persuasive. Um, similarly now, um, especially where new genetic products are, uh, whether we're talking about DNA ancestry tests like 23andMe, or if we're talking about new prenatal tests, these are for-profit products. That means, like drugs, they're advertised. That does not mean that they're useless as products. They could be useful in many ways, and many people do find them useful. But it does mean that there's a profit motive um, attached to them, and there does mean that there is um, uh, persuasion. So that's something that I look at a lot in this book. How does this persuasion work? Right. How can we recognize it? And I think this is a really key point that you do a beautiful job in talking about in the book, which is this idea that, you know, as you were talking about, you know, the kind of old version of eugenics was really focused on the state. So public health officials, other um, state and local uh, officials coming into various counties and, as you're saying, trying to persuade people to embrace certain practices to improve the outcomes of certain populations. So it was a kind of very, as you're saying, top-down uh, oriented strategy. Um, and that, and as, as we talk about the role of technology and disability, which we'll have going forward in this conversation, you know, that old school model doesn't seem to be our future. You know, it, it's hard to imagine the state playing a similar role. But the market is having a tremendous impact as on how we think about reproduction and what a good life looks like. Yes. So how does it, how does this impact the way we think about disability? Well, it goes very, very deep. Um, you know, in in the examples I was just talking about, um, what the there are three chapters in the book where I I look at the ads for new prenatal tests, and what I'm arguing is that they they're not just giving appealing images. They're presenting a narrative of what a good American life looks like. Big houses with a big picture, windows, you know, um, uh, people looking, you know, just really put together and happy and um, all of it sped along by technology. Um, um, This was made, and in one image that I talk about, this eugenic message was made most explicit, which was, um, this was in an ad from around 2012, 2013, for Maternity 21, which is a sequinoms um, uh, uh, prenatal test. And it had a, it pictured a, a woman, say, late 30s, early 40s, uh, blonde, very attractive, and she was beaming and holding up an ultrasound. Clearly, like, this is good news. And the legend beneath it said, better results through better science. So this is, you know, this is clearly... Um, uh, a strong value judgment being made about what what is a, a good result, right? Um, if you go further back, um, one historian that I, I really value, Douglas Bainton, writes that the very word retarded itself um, coincides with the rise of industrial capitalism. And he what he argues is that with the rise of wage labor, time became precious. It became divided and priced. Those who could not keep up became labeled as the retarded, those who were literally slow, those who could not fit into this, into this wage model. So when we're talking about you know, um, the idea of someone being unfit, the, other, the obvious question is unfit for what? What world have we bit, built where someone is not fit? What world have we built where someone doesn't fit in? Right. So, right, and I think you're, you're making such an important point in terms of the way that these type of private investments – and screening um, affects the way we think about disability to an extent. It, it, it affects the way we think about disability because it, it raises the important question of where are we investing our dollars. So on the one hand, we're we're we're, we're spending a tremendous amount of money through the private sector in terms of being able to screen out certain traits, as opposed to thinking about what are the ways that the public can invest to make sure that society itself is accessible and inclusive of, of a diverse range of people, and that's a certain political choice. Um, and those type of political choices shapes how we think about which lives are valued, as you were saying. Yeah, and it also shapes what a woman can consider to be realistic in terms of what child she wishes to bear. So prenatal tests in the world with universal health care and with um, 
solid, not shaky supports for people with disabilities is a completely different decision. And it's, it's not an abstract question of value. It's just like, how am I going to make this work? And so, you know, to the extent that there are or are not supports to rely on, that materially affects that. Right. Yeah. Right. So yeah. before we go any, fur- any yeah. further, I think it's important to um, kind of define some of these terms. Yep. So one thing yep. you talk about in the book is the difference between a social versus medical model yep. disability. Yep. I think that'd be great to talk about for a minute. Yes. Um, so the medical model of disability um, um uh, or what disability rights activists call the medical model of disability, um, focuses on disappear- disability purely as a physical uh, feature. Okay, um, I was talking last night with Marcia Saxton, who's um, a fantastic. She's an activist and thinker, and she's been at this work for four decades. She knows more. For, she's forgotten more than I'll ever know about this stuff, and lived it too. Um, she prefers the term medical deficit model because she doesn't want to dismiss medicine. She says, we need doctors. We all need doctors, disabled people, non-disabled people. So she doesn't she, – I thought that was a good distinction. But the difference is between focusing purely on the, the, the physical impairment and a social model that focuses on context and what people who argue – um, for the social model will broadly say is that the difficulty comes from oppression. Now, there there is nuances to this within disability studies, and there are, are gray cases and, and other models. But broadly speaking, um, what I take the social model to mean is that you can only look at impairments in context. Um, one example that's always stuck with me, there's a great book by Joe Shapiro called No Pity. It's about the rise of the disability rights movement. And it's, it's about 20 years ago since it was written, but it's still relevant. And he uh, says, imagine someone in a wheelchair in Manhattan. If there are no curb cuts, um, that person is um, on an island the size of one block. That's, if there are curb cuts, he can go anywhere. So there, you know, in terms of to, to focus on his legs at that point is kind of it's it's if you focus instead of like, can he get from point A to point B? The difference there is social, not physiological. So um, when disability rights activists talk about the social model, they're talking about the built environment and also the attitudes um, that may disable people that may prevent them from flourishing. Right, right. So it's this interesting idea that what is disabling is not necessarily the traits that people have, but the environment and society they find themselves in, and that through certain choices that we make as a society, we can make we, people can have much more robust, um, independent lives. Right, right, absolutely. And and at the same time, to 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 say so, this that's those are two kind a useful broad distinction to make. There is most of the world is gray, and there's no exceptions there. Um, intellectual disability itself is not an easy case for the social model, right? Chronic pain is not an easy case for the social model. That's disabling, but you know, um, there's there you know there there's not always necessarily a, a ramp, but it's more an emphasis on social context is uh, helping to create the meaning of disability, something that happens at the intersection of the body and the world is the way I think about it. So let's switch gears a little bit. Sure. So this is the book about technology. Yes. Um, and w- one of the reasons why I appreciate this book um, is that it's such a beautiful and fluid kind of connection between the personal stories you tell and then kind of the kind of social critique of new biomedical technologies. So you 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 kind of list a few technologies that yes. you see as being disruptive in terms of how we think about disability. Yes. Um, and I wanted to give you an opportunity to kind of talk about some of these technologies and sure. why you see them as relevant. Um, so probably the, um, the big one that, that you all may have heard of is, is CRISPR or CRISPR Cas9 is the best known version. And um, it's, it's often described as a word processor for DNA. It allows us to make, fairly precise changes fairly cheaply and easily to living cells. Um, The significance of that is that it makes germline editing possible, and it is important to distinguish between germline editing, which are changes, say, to an egg, a sperm, or an embryo, which are inherited, can be passed down, and somatic editing, which may affect only one person. Um, 
So as you may have heard, um, the first genetically engineered people have already been born, um, Chinese twins, late last year, um, uh, by someone who flouted any reasonable ethics, ethical practices in science that you can possibly imagine. Um, you know, the connection to to disability to me is is kind of obvious because it goes beyond what we're able to do now, which is select or select against certain conditions and start um, repairing or fixing from the beginning, creating. Um, so that's one technology that's, that is um, here. Um, the other that I've t mentioned before is um, uh, NIPT, a new kind of uh, prenatal testing. All of the computers, or, or sorry, all of the technologies that I, I look at are um, joined by their use of computers, which is to say the ability to, you know, genes are a lot of data, right? There, there's a lot of information. We have an unprecedented ability to manage, process, tinker with information. That's what makes these new technologies possible. And so how do you think about these technologies um, in terms of their kind of comparative impact and their significance? So um, some of these technologies or approaches uh, are of more consequence than others. And so how do you think about them, particularly in relation to your the conversations you're having around disability? That's a really good question. I think some of them um, it's impossible to tell. You know, I am. I made a really explicit decision in this book not to prognosticate. You know, my my own experience is like we're personally bad as people predicting what will make ourselves individually happy, let alone what will happen from the endless factors that produce the future. Um, so, I don't want to be all chicken little about CRISPR, I actually think that that it has the potential to have enormous benefit. Um, one argument against doing germline editing with CRISPR is that a high-profile disaster can set back many um, ethically uncontroversial uses. Examples of gene editing, approaches to cancer, experimental uses in the lab. My wife uses CRISPR. My wife's a research scientist. She uses CRISPR in the lab. So, it's it's not even so much the um, that technology itself so much as what it makes possible. Um, what I was interested in was in in this book. What I looked at pretty closely was the people who are advocating its use. How do they talk about human beings? And so, if for example, someone says in their book, you know, in principle, we can fix. Um, a chondroplasia, which is a version of dwarfism. Um, uh, we can address Huntington's disease, which is a degenerative disease that, that uh, attacks mid to later life uh, and is invariably fatal. Um, congenital hearing loss, autism, cancer. And then, then to see a heterogeneous list like that really troubles me. Because some of these things are diseases, and most of us would say, however you address it, this is something to be addressed. You know, uh, Michael Barabay, who's a thinker I like a lot, says, you know, there's no Tay-Sachs Appreciation League. Kids get it. They die typically before two. It's, it's, it's pretty horrible. So, um, so it's not – certainly they're not all conditions are, are – can be thought of as like this is an example of human diversity. The problem with having a heterogeneous list is that things like deafness, Down syndrome, and autism, um, and dwarfism too, chondroplasia, um, uh, get lumped in together with um, horrific diseases as if we can fix them all. And that, may, that, is, uh, that leads me, I guess, to another continuity with the first age of eugenics, which is the obsession with the idea of normalcy. You know, normal is a very complicated idea. It kind of combines the idea of the average and the idea of the ideal, which is really dangerous, right? And so um, when you just say, well, we can fix all of these things and we're going to consider all of them as abnormal, that tends to kind of steamroll the actual experience of people who have these conditions. And that's, it's really important to me that in this conversation that the people whose conditions are cited need to be heard from. Right. Right. I think this question of uh, of hype 
is really important. So back in the early 2000s, um, you know, California was in a bit, in some ways, ground zero for some of the stem cell conversations where the state decided to uh, put billions of dollars of investment um, into stem cell research. Um, and uh, the conversations that were happening, happening in general across the country were fascinating. I remember uh, there was a senator who, during a public interview, during a public hearing, says something along the lines of "stem cells will cure all known problems" or something, something along those lines. <laughs> and uh, at the time, that seemed yeah. like a sensible thing to say. You know, looking back on that, it's you know, patently yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. But you know, every time a new technology emer- emerges, you have this level of hype. Right. <clears throat> and we're seeing that now with CRISPR, right. as you're suggesting, where um, we're, we have this idea that this new technology can solve all social problems. And I think what your book does is it raises the important question of whenever we have these conversations about a new technology solving all known social problems, implicit in that conversation is this idea that it will solve disability and the framing of disability as a social problem. And there's an important kind of continuity with that framing um, along that the continuity with that framing. And as you were saying, the eugenics movie, because this was the exact conversation happening in the, in the early 1900s, the idea that science could help us take control of human uh, reproduction in a way that framed disability as a social problem that could be uh, taken care of. And that's a very dangerous proposition. Well, it's a category error, isn't it? The idea that you can solve social problems exclusively with technological means. And one, there are a couple of consequences. One is that you, you know, when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So when you can change genes, you focus on genetic problems. But, you know, that doesn't solve problems like the absence of clean water for billions of people. It doesn't solve malnutrition. It doesn't solve, there's a whole range of human suffering that is not necessarily genetic. So even the the focus, I, I, I guess I'm kind of broadly... Um, asking to step back and rather than saying, look at this tool, what can we do with it? Say, what is the problem and what are, what are we trying to address? And I think if we have that kind of cold eye on it, then we can say, well, what this, these are the ways in which these prenatal tests are genuinely useful. These are the ways in which um, CRISPR can contribute to human flourishing. Mm-hmm. So we're sitting here um, kind of almost – in the middle of Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. we're a little bit north, but, <laughs> <laughs> but the driving eth- ethos here is, as we're talking about, one of that technology can solve these type of social problems. Yet, you know, as you walk around the streets of San Francisco, all you see is growing inequality, gentrification, and a stronger social dis- distancing between the haves and have-nots. So, what do we need to do to rethink the way that we approach technology, both in ter- both in biomedical in a biomedical sense, and the broader sense of information technology and other innovations that have reshaped everyday life. So I guess I want to I want to pick up on the phrase you will see in every virtually every um, uh, popular news article about CRISPR, which is promise and peril. If you if you it's it's literally in almost every title, you know, CRISPR, promise or peril. And and my question is, promise or peril for whom? So if we have a vastly unequal society, the promise and the peril are going to be unequally distributed. Um, You know, they're also going to be, at least at this state, um, unequally distributed with respect to men and women. Until we have artificial wombs, women are going to be the ones from whom eggs are harvested and they will undergo those risks and they will be the one carrying the children and they will undergo those risks. So, you know, if this is one consequence of focusing only on disease um, or only on disease or disability, it's like we're we're, um, diverting the – our eyes from the reproductive process itself and who is taking on the most risk. Um, the other point, of course, is that the the ones taking on the risk, should we begin to create children um, by by whatever means, engineer children, will be those future children themselves. And that is not to say that this should necessarily never be done, but it is, I think, that it does need to weigh more heavily in our deliberations. So I guess a, a general quest point would be, if we're bringing in a powerful new technology, how does it affect the most vulnerable people in our society? Right. 
So one of the things I really enjoyed about your book is that you spent a lot of time looking at various websites yeah, uh, yeah. and looking at how these uh, newer, new technologies around uh, – <clears throat> excuse me. You spent a lot of time looking at how some of these new technologies are being presented to the public. And oftentimes that initial interface with the public is through some form of marketing. Um, so can you just talk a little bit about kind of what your, uh, your, your observations are around the marketing and how – it's impacting some of the norms of expectations around both uh, reproduction and parenting? Sure. Um, So most of the work I did was for uh, looking at the um, websites advertising prenatal tests, which I've I've, already talked about uh, some about the kind of ideal that they they propound. Um, And I think that Maybe I can just read a very short section because this will just give a, a flavor of what I was doing. Um, and the, um, you know, what I do as a, a writer is I read closely. You, you can't write if you don't read, as a teacher of mine used to say. And reading closely, you know, you, you like to pick apart things and see how they work. So, um, so what I did is I just treated um, um, websites kind of as if they were novels. It's like, what are the meanings here? Who's included? Who's omitted? And um, in this case, what I, um, I did was to just try and do an, an uh, analysis of the language. And so I'll just do a, a short thing here. Okay. To respond to the advertising for NIPT, that's non-invasive prenatal testing, uh, is to respond to a corporate voice. It's anonymous, thoughtful, expert, synthetic, reassuring, incorporeal, and it is engineered to solve a complex rhetorical problem. How to make an uncertain test seem certain, a world of technical complexity seem simple, a new technology seem shiny new and not scary new, and persuasion sound like information. That voice is distilled in the bold print catchphrases and headlines associated with each test. Find clarity early and demand clarity. Highly accurate, comprehensive results you can trust. The reassurance of knowing and empowering informed choices and pioneering science and personalized service and my very favorite, highly accurate answers to important questions. These phrases crystallize the ad's appeal. They link science words with emotion words, linking accurate to trust, reassurance to knowing, pioneering science to personalized service. By doing so, they imply the message beneath the message that science and technology embodied by the test allow us to achieve a good American life. So I, what I was doing reading the, um, looking at these websites is saying, what are the images? What are the words? How do they work together? Um, what I found working with genetic counselors, and especially a, a terrific genetic counselor named Katie Stoll, um, was that um, I, I began to see that advertisements are in tension with what a genetic counselor is trying to do. If a woman comes to a genetic counselor and is considering getting pregnant and considering taking a test, um, the genetic counselor can guide her through the processes, the risks of each test, if there are any, the the conditions that it, the test will report out, and so on, and help a woman come to a decision in line with her own values. But the idea is for her, for that decision to be in line with her own values. The genetic counselor, by definition, is not trying to get someone to do one thing or another thing. But an ad is trying to get someone to do one thing. They're trying to get to uptake. So to me, that's a, there's a basic tension between good medical practice and commercial persuasion there. So that's why I wanted to look so closely at the at the techniques. Was well, there any one particular ad that stood out to you as particularly shocking or troubling <laughs> or um, raised your eyebrows? It or? was it was probably that one I cited before. You mm-hmm. know, the better results through better science, and they they have they have softened somewhat. They have um, they have um, they you know they are subtle. They're incredibly well done. I mean, they are the best that money can buy. And if you if you look at some of the 
lower rent fertility clinic websites, you'll realize like like the, the the big companies really have it going on. Like they they have these perfect, beautiful websites with the best scrolling animations. And some of the the, the like the the lower tier ones, it's more like you've been at a Lexus dealer and you've gone to a used car dealer. It's like oh, a lot of things flashing at me. This is you know, but. Um, but the the thing that the I'll tell you the one thing that struck me was that um, in one I, I I and I found this out late in the writing of the book in one ad there's this picture of these of a man and a woman and they're you know um, I mean they look like they've just come from the country club you know not to stereotype but they're just you know they're really put together and and you see them over this blurred doctor's shoulder and they look happy they look like they've just gotten some good news. Late in the writing of this book, I said, let's do a reverse Google image search. So I clipped that out, and I searched in Google, and I found that these, this image was used to sell, like, what was it? Um, oh, there, there was a whole host of things that, like, from, like, replacement windows and doors to other things. Like, like so, but the, the, what I found is, like, a lot of these images are stock images. And so they're, on the one hand, they're used to sell prenatal tests, but they're also used, like, to advertise the services of a debt restructuring company. And the point is that just selling is just selling. And one, I, one thing I wanted to do with this book is not to say, you know, technology bad. I think, you know, I, am, I have an iPhone in my bag over there. I like gadgets. I build things. I like technology. My, my thing was to say we should be informed and critical citizens and that when something is being sold to us, we should recognize the moves being done. So the fact that these same images are used to sell, you know, um, on the one hand, prenatal test, and on the other, an all-natural um, insect repellent bracelet suggests that um, that appealing families are used to sell things, from Diet Coke to prenatal tests. And we should just recognize it for what it is so that we can have a little bit of a colder eye. Right, right. So you mentioned genetic counseling yeah. and count- genetic. Um, yeah. The, so these professionals who are, who are available to help uh, individuals make choices around reproduction. So, you know, as you know, this is a profession with a deeply concerning past. Um, and, but the profession seems to be on an upswing now. So you see more, um, for example, more professional degree programs in genetic counseling being offered. So I wanted to just ask you just your general thoughts about the field. Um, you mentioned earlier about how counselors, you know, help people make choices, but you know, not everyone has had come to that same assessment. Um, and some, there has been some deep criticism about a field that often, um, kind of passively pushes an agenda, uh, with regards to which types of, of, of births are, are, are appropriate and which ones should be avoided. And, um, just wanted to hear your thoughts on that. I'm, I'm hesitant to, generalize about the field. I, I, I will say you mentioned Alex Stern before, and she, of course, has written The History of Genetic Counseling. She's written Telling Genes, which is a, a terrific book. Um, I have to say, you know, I, I wrote about this in the book. Katie Stoll, who is my guide through this world, has become a really good friend. And I wrote about how improbable it was. Like, parents of kids with Down syndrome and genetic counselors don't really hang out. I mean, it's just really, really different worlds. But um, so without – I'm hesitant to say much about the field in general, but I will say that there, I know several genetic counselors who are making an incredible effort to build more awareness about nuanced views of disability and to build what they see as genuine choice apart from commercial imperatives. Um, the other thing I will say about the field is that there are not nearly enough of them even now – if CRISPR comes online at scale, we're going to have a huge problem because given these given these powers, you really need an expert to talk to who will help you work through your values. We don't have nearly enough of those people now. There is uh, an acknowledged diversity issue that, that it's mostly white women at this point. And so we need more genetic counselors and more who look like all the people that there are who are going to be making these decisions. Yeah. 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 So let's pivot a little bit sure. and let's talk about enhancement. Okay. So oftentimes we think about disability and enhancement as two separate conversations, but as you talked about earlier, they are tied together in terms of the desire to be uh, superhuman is often tied to a, a, a fear of not being fully human or perceived as fully human. And so whenever we talk about disability, it's important to talk about enhancement as well because they, they inform each other. Yes. Um, 
So technologies like CRISPR uh, and other types of germline inter interventions um, are often talked about in terms of the prospective ability to uh, not only uh, treat certain ailments, but also to enhance certain abilities, such as intelligence or musical capability. And so I just wanted to hear your thoughts about the ways in which disability is, con is connected to this conversation. So um, it, it's, it's, it's often there in ways that people either aren't willing to acknowledge or, or unable to acknowledge. And I think it's important to really have a particular conversation that when we talk about a future world where people have superhuman abilities, it's a world and a, converse, and a conversation in particular that can adversely affect the way we think about disabled folks who are, who are with us today. Well, one thing to understand is that we are, um, disability is relative, you know, I mean, we are, you know, if, if I, I am to, to back up, I am, um, I'm skeptical of the ability of CRISPR to produce, to reliably produce, um, um, enhancements of these kinds. Even height is, um, involves many, many, many genes and not just genes, but genes working in concert with environment in unpredictable ways. So, um, I will say that I think the hope will be sold. I think that the idea, the promise will be sold, but I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. I will say that, um, we need to understand that, that, um, disability is a relative concept, a contextual concept. If somehow we can, um, you know, upgrade large numbers of people to genius levels, then I suppose we in the room will seem disabled in comparison. And I, you know, I taught one, one feature of, um, books that are enthusiastic about, um, the directed evolution of the species. Um, one, one trope you see is the idea of a distant future where we begin engineering now and far, far in the future our unimaginably intelligent descendants have populated the galaxy. And, um, and usually there's a line about how, you know, compared to them, like we are like bugs or worms. But to me, this it's a very strange imagination because it suggests that compared to, to these imagined distant beings, we are essentially intellectually disabled. Um, I think that the idea of intellect um, is really bound up in these wishes for improvement. And I think that the idea of disability is the flip side of the coin. It's, it's the feared thing that often drives these wishes for enhancement. I hope we don't go down that road, just, right. you, know, you know. So do you think that these technologies need some form of regulation? So in many ways, uh, assisted reproduction is kind of the Wild West. Yep. So we have yeah. um, technologies that are introduced in the market, and while there is some oversight, um, it's not as rigorous as some would like. And some people have proposed that we need much more tighter oversight and regulation to make sure, A, that these technologies are, are safe, and B, that we don't, um, even when safe, that they don't produce adverse social outcomes. Um, and uh, what are your thoughts on this question of regulation? Is this something that the market can be left to sort things out, or do we need to have a much more proactive um, conversation um, and political engagement to make sure that these are these things play out the right way. I'm going to go with option two. <laughs> and I will also say that, that that since we're getting to regulation and law, this is so much more your expertise, uh, area of expertise than mine. But, but I'll take it away. I got it anyway. I'm just the interviewer so here. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I do. I mean, I, you know, um, and I think, you know, beyond, like, I think of regulation as concerned mainly with um, safety and efficacy. But I think that if we're talking about engineering the species, like of our taking control of evolution, becoming a different species, as, as, or, or changing the, the boundaries, pushing them out, as some people advocate, I think that's beyond regulation. I think we're thinking about law. I think we're thinking about the, the, the principles uh, by which we uh, administer human life, what we understand as what it means to be human. And one thing that occurs to me is like, 
you know, I think we all need to be involved in this conversation. And I, I think that for all of us, it's a very intimidating conversation because it's science, it's technology, it's these things that just feel like, to me, they feel above my pay grade. But I kind of feel like the more of us weigh in on this conversation, the more we have a chance of using these things in a, in a, in a just way. But yes, I, I think that um, um, leaving it to the market is problematic because it means that um, the actors who are not too careful or searching for glory are just going to go ahead and do stuff. Um, the birth of the Chinese twins last year is a perfect example of this. So, um, and, and there are others as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, I really like what you said about the, these are conversations that we all have to participate in. Um, you know, questions around disability are not simply kind of interest group conversations for a particular group. There are questions about how we organize society, how we use resources, um, how we kind of build the world around us so that we can all um, be included in it. And that is a conversation that requires everyone to be in the room and to make sure that decisions are made not only for the benefit of everyone, but also um, in a manner that builds consensus and buy-in because it's not only about a conversation about a particular approach, but it's about how do we shape attitudes going forward. Yes. Um, and that's that requires, you know. Yes. A lot of participation, and we were last in a conversation I was uh, having last night at the uh, the public library near here. Uh, in the Q and A afterwards, Milton Reynolds, who whom you know, uh, said that what that really means is you're thinking about education, is that bringing this up early and getting kids thinking about this, and not saying like, okay, you got to think this or you got to think you have to have a social justice approach or a, a market friendly approach or whatever, but just saying these are the questions and they're important and you have to start thinking about it because the default, if we don't, is that the, the if we don't think about it, the power will still get used. It'll just be used, decided on by a narrow group of people. Um, in terms of the conversation itself, the other point I want to make is that there's a big difference between having a voice and having a say. So in, in, it's very easy to create a situation where people speak up and roughly feel heard. You know, but it's different to when people have decision rights are actually voting on like, should we do this or not? And that, that I think that's a critical difference we need to think about. Yeah, yeah. So for our last question, yeah. um, and it ties in nicely with the things you've been saying um, for the past few minutes. So what types of things can we do to change people's biases? So disability is one of those biases that um, people don't often acknowledge or realize is a bias. Um, they think the oftentimes the conversation is that as we we're talking earlier about these kind of medical models around disability, they think of these things as, you know, in, inherent limitations in people's bodies that, you know, we can't do much about. Um, but um, it seems like and one of the things I, I really like about this book is that it's written in a way to force people to think about um, how they understand the world around them. And, to, and it, in a very kind of nuanced and gentle way, you're encouraging people to rethink some of their kind of preconceptions about what it means to live with Down syndrome. And also to be aware that uh, with, with technological innovation comes a series of practices that may disrupt certain communities in f profound ways. And we need to be a bit more thoughtful about that. So that's a lot to tackle. Yeah. Um, but at the, at the heart of this question is how, this is a, is a, you know, very deliberate effort to change people's biases about the world. And I really want to hear your thoughts about, you know, how you think about doing that. So, um, a couple of things. One is, um, uh, literature has value. So I, I've noticed like people meet Laura and their minds change. You can see things dawning on them. Like at first it's like, oh, she's super cute. And then it's like, oh, okay, there's someone is in there. This is like a life. This is a story. Um, not everyone can meet Laura. I think she'd be kind of happy to meet everyone. She would, she's a really gregarious kid. But, but um, a story, a, a well-told story can, um, can bring a nuanced view of disability to many people at once. So a, a well-told story is one thing. Um, the other thing, and this is just for me, um, I wrote a piece uh, for that was aimed at medical students, and I wanted to ask them a kind of difficult question, which is, you know, if you're in medical school, you are the smartest of the smart. You've been trained um, to live by intellect, to perform by intellect. What's going to happen when your patient is intellectually disabled? How do you recognize that person's full humanity? And I did it 
like I didn't want to like just shake my fist in their face and say you're all insensitive and ableist. Get with you know it's like that never works. So I guess um, you know the thing I said is like no one was ever scolded into enlightenment. So I'm I'm happy to call people out when they're really horrible. I do it a couple times in the book, but by and large, I would rather assume the possibility of change. And that comes from watching Laura develop. Because my, pers- my, my lesson from that as a parent is that we are all developing, me included. So I like to give people room and sort of share a little bit of what I've known and then hope that people come along. Great. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu slash podcast. <laughs>